Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi again. Just before we get to the next episode with Hassan Aigun, I want to remind you about the survey I have put out to get your thoughts on the podcast so far. You will find the link in the episode notes and it will take you about two minutes to complete. Thank you for helping shape the future of the Voices of War. My guest today is Hassan Aigun. He's a Turkish national who has had an extensive career in international relations, global security issues and conflict management, both as a diplomat and later as a political advisor. Hassan joined the Turkish Ministry of Foreign Affairs in 1983, and since then he has served abroad in various functions, including Vice Consul, First Secretary, Head of Mission, and Council General in a number of different countries including Iraq, Italy, Serbia, but at that time still Yugoslavia, Austria, Azerbaijan, and Saudi Arabia. He later became a senior political advisor for NATO, where over the years he provided advice to six different four-star generals. During this time, He supported NATO humanitarian operations in places like Pakistan during the Kashmir earthquake and in the US during Hurricane Katrina. He also actively participated in operations in the Sudan and Somalia, as well as in counter-piracy operations and support to the African Union. Hassan also gives lectures and conferences at the African Union and United Nations events, at NATO's education facilities and various other academic institutions. He has authored many classified papers within NATO on global security, culture, religion, ethnicity awareness, conflict resolution, and country case studies. Hassan is currently an Associate Director at Strategia Worldwide, where he advises multinational businesses, governments, and NGOs on complex risk management in conflict-affected regions, with a geographical focus on the former Soviet states, the Middle East, Africa, the broader Islamic world, as well as maritime and energy transportation. And as a final point, during my preparation for this interview, I noticed on Hassan's LinkedIn profile that he also speaks six languages, which I find absolutely astounding. Hassan, it's an absolute pleasure to host you on the podcast. Uh, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Maz. Uh, that was impressive, <laughs> hearing it from someone else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, but, but it was not easy. It was not easy. Let me put it forward first it's an absolutely amazing an amazing uh profile that you have uh, I, i was blown away when i was putting together your uh, your background so i'm uh, very humbled to have you on the podcast i think you bring a particularly unique perspective across so many, many different dimensions of war and conflict and maybe before we delve into into that extensive background maybe we can open with a question about how it all began you know what drew you into the world of foreign service and international relations all the way back in in 83 well first uh, let me thank you for giving me this opportunity uh, to talk openly frankly on uh, uh, my past experiences and how i came uh, to the point where i am now okay uh, i loved traveling. Uh, at the middle school, I decided that I should become a diplomat so I can travel and get paid. So that was the idea. And I started learning uh, languages and traveling. And uh, at one point, I found myself at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and I was very enthusiastic about it. My first foreign posting was Iraq during the Iran-Iraq war. 
And that opened my eyes. I said, hey, it's not only cocktails with a nice glass of champagne <laughs> in your hand and free traveling, but there is a price to pay. Yet I loved to pay that price because it was unique. It was incredible opportunity to see uh, the human interaction. I had to go through several wars, first the Iran-Iraq war. Then I was uh, head of mission in Belgrade during the Bosnian war, a very, very difficult period. Then at the OSCE, I was dealing with the remnant conflicts uh, from the breakup of Warsaw Pact from Soviet Union. As if these were not enough, then I uh, moved to the Caucasus and saw the effects of Azerbaijan-Armenia war. And it went on like that. I don't know whether it was me that uh, that was expendable. If he dies, it's okay. If he succeeds, it's okay. I don't know. But I found myself in very, very unique domains. And that brought me to uh, NATO. Uh, so every uh, conflict uh, that would come up, I had some ammunition for a few minutes uh, to give an uh, outline of what was happening. I think that was the uh, difficult, uh, precious uh, experience I had. So uh, it went on. It was very difficult on family. It was difficult on my uh, two uh, daughters who hated my job and said they would never become a diplomat. So here I am uh, with this unique lifestyle and experience. And I don't regret uh, much because such a job gave me lots of opportunities to understand and help people. And in fact, help my country as well uh, to explain what was happening. Because everything depends on a good understanding of who's your friend, who's your enemy, what are their priorities, and whether you can come to a win-win situation. Mm. So that's about it. And learning languages, it is so important to understand the ordinary people. The officials, government officials, they all speak a language, but they are not telling you what they really think about what they really believe. They are talking about government policies and they have to stay in line. So understanding local ordinary people on the street uh, would give me an incredible uh, dimension in understanding the fears, the expectations, the hatred, the love of people. So uh, that's why I try to learn as many languages as I can to be able to communicate with ordinary people on the street. Thank you so much for that, uh, for that kind of, uh, a broad overarching, uh, view of your very extensive experience. Going back to that, that first war that you've been to, which was the Iran Iraq war. As a young man at that point in time, I'm assuming eager, you know, to, to pursue a foreign policy on behalf of, uh, I guess the Turkish government, right? Because you were there as a representative of the Turkish government. What was that like? Because it was a, there are multiple competing priorities. Not only are you witnessing a conflict between two neighboring nations, but you are now trying to also inject the strategic operational objectives of Turkey into this mix. What, what was that experience like? Well, Iran-Iraq war was a very exceptional case in which Turkey 
try to be as neutral as possible. I'm not saying impartial, neutral. Both countries were neighbors. We had long history, sometimes checkered history, but the decision was to stay outside the war. In fact, a large portion of Iraqi exports, oil exports, were going through Turkey at that time. And it was like a lifeline for Iraqis. But at the same time, uh, the borders were open to Iran. And in fact, before uh, going to Iraq, I was part of an operation for exchange of uh, war prisoners of war. So uh, they would, they would uh, be uh, transported to Turkey by Turkish airlines, and we would provide them some basic support for uh, a few hours, a couple of days, uh, food, for example. Uh, a prisoner of war enjoying his first full uh, meal. That was incredible experience. Someone who has not eaten properly for months or even years, first time enjoying a full uh, dinner. That's an experience I think everybody should experience once in their lives to appreciate, to appreciate normal life. Well, at least reflect so, uh, on it, right? At least reflect yes. on that. Yeah. Yes. So in Iraq, my job was, of course, to uh, represent my country, always think about win-win situations. That was, that was the key. And of course, always I had to look at end state. What do I do and how it affects the relations locally or regionally or uh, nationwide? Because it's so easy to cross the lines when everybody's sensitive about their survival. Iraqis, for many, it was a survival war. And they were much more sensitive than they would be uh, when you talk about their leaders, decision-making, uh, the sufferings and everything. So it was very delicate to focus on the uh, expectations of the local people and also expectations of my own government. Balance was the key. To be trustworthy was the key. Sometimes uh, the Turkish decision might not be appealing for the locals. Uh, the important thing was to explain them honestly what instructions uh, I was getting and why, why those instructions were coming in. They would say, why can't you change it? No, it's not always possible for a bureaucrat to change them. So being trustworthy and honest were very, very important. And I think I, think I managed to explain what Ankara was uh, instructing me about and how I was uh, putting it forward. Something unique about Iraq, I had two lunches with Saddam Hussein, <laughs> one-on-one. Wow. He would visit, he would visit uh, Mosul, where I was posted, once a year on 8th of April. And I don't know why, but the tradition was he would have his lunch with the only diplomat existing in that city, in that area. And that was me for two years in a row. Oh, wow. So it was, it was an incredibly unique experience to sit uh, uh, with Saddam Hussein around a small table and eating from the same plate and drinking from the same glass uh, as it is the tradition in that country. Extremely unique. He was impressive. 
Maybe you can explain that tradition because I think most people yes. won't uh, necessarily understand the meaning behind that. That's a, that's powerful. It is it is a powerful tradition because uh, they were uh, they were living in tribal formations, and uh, especially the men had to travel because they did not have any industry base. They would take their uh, animals, uh, go to feeding areas or they would go to different cities, different parts of the country for trade. So everybody had to go through their neighbors or sometimes enemies' uh, terrain. And the tradition developed that if your enemy came to your tent, to your village, you had to treat him like a guest. Outside your territory, he was an enemy. So everybody needed this kind of protection. And they had developed this protection of having anyone as guest. And one important thing was that the guest should feel safe. Mm. How do you feel safe? How do you know that you're not poisoned? So they had to eat from the same plate and drink from the same glass. That was the way of showing the guest that you were treating him like one of your own family or tribe. It's an incredible gesture, even valid today. And believe me, uh, the first tries were very <laughs> difficult for me. Uh, <laughs> what's going on? Why don't I get my own glass? Why don't I get my own plate? But developing that understanding that it's a, a millennia-old uh, tradition, I learned to survive it. But the minute I moved uh, to my next post, I ate from my own plate and drank it. <laughs> of course. But that's, a, again, that's a really, really important insight into understanding the local cultures and, yes. and the human terrain and how the place functions, which is definitely a, a, a principal area of my own interest. And we'll definitely come back to that. But I, I won't let you get away uh, too easily to, to not speak about uh, Saddam Hussein's meetings a little more because... Uh, well, for one, I've never met anyone who's uh, had one-on-one -on -one lunches uh, with Saddam Hussein. Uh, so that was obviously during the in the early days, or, or so in the late eighties, I'm guessing. So during the Iran-Iraq War or mid eighties, or eighty-three to eighty-five uh, 80, to eighty-seven. Okay, yeah. Uh, so he was still uh, very much a favored person by the West at that point in time, right? Uh, he was he was still favored, yes, and in fact. Okay, he was, he was a ruthless, incredible uh, man. Mm. Uh, what he achieved at that time was an internal peace at a very high cost for Shia Arabs, especially. But not many were uh, dying. Only few were dying uh, if they uh, opposed the government. The government was ruthless. So the system was based on uh, protecting the Sunni Arabs, which was a minority, and uh, using, uh, dividing and using Kurds against each other. So they were, the, they were supporters of the regime, paid by the regime, and those opposing the regime. So Kurds had their way of getting something out of Saddam and uh, making sure that flow of money and goods will arrive to Kurdish areas. Sometimes uh, Sunni Arabs would not be able to find basic uh, foodstuff, but uh, Kurdish areas always had them. 
because he had to appease them. And at the end of the war, the first thing he did was to attack Kurds, if you remember uh, their history. Uh, so uh, Saddam, Saddam was very powerful in defending uh, the Sunnis, but he was not so good in uh, making uh, friends with uh, Shiite Arabs. And most of the Shiite Arabs were under the influence of Tehran, of course. Ayatollah Sistani uh, was their spiritual leader. And uh, at any occasion, uh, they would rise against the regime. But Saddam was powerful enough to keep them under control. What happened is that the West came into Iraq with some democracy ideas mm. uh, against an authoritarian leader. And they made a full mess out of that country. Over a million people died. A few millions were displaced. And Iraq is never going to be what it was. So Saddam, he was bad. But Saddam was the lid on top of a bottle of Coke, which was shaken all the time. I can say the same for uh, Libya, for Gaddafi. Who I think you also had some uh, personal engagements. Well, I, I, I had a couple of occasions uh, meeting him as part of a delegation. I had a late dinner on two occasions in his tent between uh, two and three o'clock in the morning and a tea ceremony until five o'clock. Again, an impressive, intelligent person. But both leaders, they never had a second man uh, waiting in line. They were afraid of them. That's why uh, they took too much responsibilities, too many responsibilities. And they were, in the end, killed by the weight of those mistakes they made. Sometimes it was not mistakes. Both cases, Gaddafi and Saddam, how they died was something planned outside the country. And that's a really interesting point because that's uh, and and I was hoping you you'd bring that point up because I think that's one of those things yes. that that perpetually confuses me and, and and I think this is a an important question about conflict in general, but particularly these types of conflicts over the past two three decades that we've had, uh, which many call local conflicts uh, uh, or, or civil wars. However. The more you peel back these conflicts, the more you realize that there are other players involved, right? So it is fundamentally a geopolitical conflict played out in a very local, localized area because various stakeholders exist, all of whom have, whether it's overt or, you know, covert or clandestine support by other nations. So how, how do you unpack that? Because at which point does a local conflict become a global conflict? Well, every conflict attracts interested parties from inside, from outside. Every nation uh, looks at what's happening in a specific geography where there is a conflict, whether it's going to hurt interests or whether there can be some interests in uh, being part of that conflict or crisis, overtly or covertly, as you put it's, uh, it's really difficult to tell what is international or global and not. For example, Sudan, Darfur conflict. Chad was involved, UN was involved, African Union was involved, but it was never a global or international conflict. 
because there was almost no spillover effect. People were suffering on the ground. People were fighting and getting killed on the ground. Uh, apart from some sympathy news uh, about poor children, poor women, there was not much interest in uh, getting involved. So uh, globalization or internationalization, what a difficult word, of a conflict depends on mostly how much interested other parties are. If you have oil or other natural uh, resources, or if you're on a uh, hub, let's say, uh, of transportation of goods, then it might become easily more relevant. Like the case of Iraq. Iraq had oil, and uh, Iran had oil, and they could they could start a spillover effect for many other countries. So uh, sometimes excuses are made uh, to become part of it. Uh, Iraq, as I said before, was a country ruled by an authoritarian, almost crazy uh, dictator. Yet the reason for attacking Iraq was not a valid reason. I lived in that country and only about four or five kilometers away from my home, there was a, a military installation uh, for building some weapons. But Iraq was not capable of building weapons of mass destruction. And that, in fact, installation was uh, built by the Polish and the equipment came from Austria. Austrian companies and Polish companies were involved. So there was no way for West not knowing what was happening there. I knew, and I would report uh, to my capital. I was so close. And some of those Polish uh, engineers and Austrians became friends. So I, I had a very simple understanding of what was happening. And in fact, when I was at the OSCE, we were getting reports uh, from observers who were searching for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And I met a Ukrainian colonel, and I, uh, we had a frank discussion one-on-one. -on -one. I said, hey, look, I lived in Iraq, and I know what they are capable of and what they are not. And what are you doing in Iraq? You've been there a year searching for weapons of mass destruction. He said, are you crazy? I if I find something, I'm not going to tell. If I don't find something, I'm not going to tell that either. In my country, my salary is $300 a month. In Iraq, I'm getting $300 a day. So don't expect me to find anything. Wow. That was a very frank opening from an ordinary person. But at the uh, capitals, the story was different. Wow. Do you believe in Washington or London? They were curious. Oh, does Iraq has weapons of mass destruction or not. But it was a good excuse to pull in the public opinion. Mm. That's interesting because, I, I, in fact, I, I very recently interviewed a, a major general from the Australian Army who was part of the observer team. Uh, so, so just, just to put the context, we, we, which period are we talking? Are we talking during the 80s or 90s, I guess, when... Uh, Saddam also early had no, 90s, early nineties, yes, right? Nineties, because uh, if I remember correctly, he was one of the observers there going to to destroy. And according to his recollection, they were actually destroying 
what he called weapons of mass destruction. Of course, Saddam didn't have nuclear weapons, no. Uh, no. never. But uh, the, the the way I understood uh, the major general explained it is that um, they in fact did destroy. And and my, uh, I'm certainly not an expert in it. I don't know what type of weapons, but uh, you know, it was broadly covered as as weapons of mass destruction. So so it'd be interesting to hear how that translates because it's it's very it's very interesting to hear you say that you know they they couldn't have had them. Now the the point is, of course, uh, almost every nation uh, with some simple chemistry understanding come up with some chemical uh, weapons, and in fact, Iraqis use it on Kurds once. How do we perceive weapon those chemical weapons as an international threat? That's the point. Iraq had no interest in using it against Iranians for nine years in a war. Iraq was not interested in attacking Washington or London with chemical weapons. They were not fully capable of. They could, of course, send a couple of agents to cause a very local damage, but they were not interested. But uh, the West used it as an excuse to destroy the whole country. To save I don't know how many, they were the reason for uh, disruption of a whole society. So uh, there is always the question mark. One can never say 100% it was innocent or not. But my personal belief in that war was there were secondary interests which were brought up. And I have to say the U.S. failed in achieving what they were hoping to achieve in Iraq. So so are you? did I understand you correctly? I mean, you made the point about oil. Uh, that it was a potentially a war about oil, or are there are there other interests that you're referring to? Well, uh, one interest was to uh, to pull the Shiite Arabs on the Western interest influence zone, give them a chance to rule the country against the Sunni dictator. But my belief is that Shiite Arabs had more interests than what the U.S. can offer them. We are talking about almost uh, 1,500 years of the feeling of belonging to a family. That's, let's say, the Shiite family. And in the end, yes, the U.S. tried very hard. They made sacrifices. So many uh, uh, soldiers lost their lives in that war. But uh, now uh, Shiite Arabs are not American friends. Sunni Arabs, of course, they hate the West, they hate the Americans, and Kurds were hoping to become independent, and they have failed so far. They are de facto liberated, but never fully. They are surrounded by uh, several friends, uh, neighbors who are not very uh, good friends. So uh, it's a mess for Kurds, it's a mess for Sunni Arabs, it's a mess for Shiite Arabs. So is that a win or a lose situation? That the same thing can be said for Afghanistan. When the first decision uh, to discuss pulling out of Afghanistan, I uh, heard from a very, very uh, important uh, American admiral who said, you leave a war zone when you win or lose. Can anybody in this hall say that we won? Nobody uh, said, oh, yes, we won. 
And uh, what happened in Afghanistan? How many people died on both sides? How many lives were disrupted? And did we win? No, no. So uh, it's it's very tough to say whether uh, one is right or not. Well, if we can go back to uh, how conflicts can become international, as I said, interests are important. History is important. Links are important. Armenia, for example, in uh, early 90s, uh, won a war against Azerbaijan and they occupied 20% of Azerbaijani soil and pushed out about a million people as displaced uh, people who suffered really uh, for almost 30 years. But uh, Russia was behind it. Uh, religion was behind it. It was romanticized. That war was romanticized. Or, uh, for uh, Orthodox Armenians fighting against uh, Muslims. And in fact, Azeris are very secular. And when it was the time when the Russians just pulled a bit back, Azerbaijan had the opportunity to move in. And who helped them? Turks, very understandable. Israelis. They provided, uh, yes, they provided the uh, suicide uh, UAVs. And Russians just sat aside and said, unless the war goes into Armenian territory, we are not going to intervene. We just want to be part of the solution and uh, put our troops on Azerbaijani soil after uh, more than 30 years. And that's what happened. So is it an international crisis? Hardly. But but third parties got involved easily. The same can be said for Bosnian war. Mm. I was uh, in the middle of it for two years in Belgrade and then another two years at the OSCE. And I was part of the uh, Dayton Agreement Preparation Team uh, traveling uh, to the area, to Sarajevo, to uh, Zagreb. Was it international? Apart from refugees from the area, like yourself, it was it was not fully uh, international. But in fact, the international players helped extend the war beyond uh, beyond the short crisis. Parties got involved; they helped either side, and the war went on. And the solution does it make everybody happy? No. Does anybody die on the ground? No. I think that's the uh, consolence for us. Uh, so it's very difficult uh, to judge what is uh, global or international. But what I can say is that uh, the effect on the ground is uh, usually much larger if the country doesn't have the resources that attract attention uh, from outside. Yeah, to actually bring people in to, to try and resolve it. Um, Yes. Your, your experience about Bosnia and, and uh, being the chief of mission in Serbia during that war, or at that time still Yugoslavia, I guess, is obviously immensely of interest to me. Um, so maybe, maybe we can actually focus on that since you, since you brought it up, because I think that's a particularly interesting conflict that did have a number of international players within it. But I think your situation would have been rather unique sitting in Serbia as a Turkish diplomat, and for anybody who knows anything about Bosnian history, and particularly kind of even the post-war uh, uh, relationships with Turkey, there's almost, Turkey's kind of viewed almost as the 
Muslim side of Bosnia, the Bosniak protectorate in many ways. Whereas, of course, Serbia and Russia are the protectorates, so to speak, of the Serb population in Bosnia. And of course, Croatia moving on to Austria, Germany as the pseudo protectorates uh, for the Croatian uh, uh, population in Bosnia. How was that for you being a Turk in Belgrade during this uh, uh, during this war? Well, I was uh, I was an enemy for uh, the leadership, and they made me uh, pay for my stay in uh, Belgrade. One of the first things uh, one of the first things they did was I found a house in Dedinia, which was diplomatic area. The first thing they did was to uh, empty a villa next to mine and put Arkan's men in that villa. Jeriko Razniatovich Arkan. There were maybe uh, 15, 20 of them living in that house, singing their uh, historical war uh, songs, uh, occasionally shooting in the air or uh, at my satellite dish. And uh, when it became, well, I had uh, two young daughters, uh, they were, they made sure not to do anything physical. Hmm. Uh, I think they were under really strict instructions not to cause too much trouble, but enough to disturb, uh, enough to disturb me. And to, and to make you know that they're there. Yes, yes. I could not get a phone to my house for almost a year. So we brought wireless systems from Turkey to be able to communicate with the embassy. So uh, I suffered the animosity of the leadership, but it was professional. They, they once uh, hit my uh, official car, a truck coming by purposefully uh, hit our car, and uh, they made the same uh, accident against my military attaché, Colonel, his car was totally destroyed. So these are the physical uh, activities. But uh, morally, I had to make a distinction between ordinary people and the authorities. Hmm. And I could, uh, that, that made me survive uh, the period in Belgrade uh, without hating everybody. Because ordinary Serbs were also suffering. And I had a chance to help Bosnians who were traveling, uh, who were reaching, let's say, Serbia. We had the system of transporting them to Turkey, and the Serbian authorities were happy about it. It was some sort of ethnic cleansing. Uh, Serbs were happy to get rid of Bosnians. But for us, it was a a life or really difficult life choice. And we provided help. In fact, during that period, we managed to take out about 30,000 people. Wow. Uh, and the, the most uh, interesting case was uh, Trebinje, for example, mm. uh, when, Trebinje, when Muslims were uh, expelled from Trebinje. The, uh, there were cases of mixed families, how they suffered or how they became overly nationalist. A, a Bosniak wife would be thrown out of the family, or a Serbian husband would suffer the same fate uh, occasionally. I tried focusing on the, the ordinary people, the innocent people, and I also tried to focus on stories of 
different ethnicities helping each other at extreme cases. I think there are a few stories very interesting to hear. I would love to hear them, yeah. Uh, if you have the time. For example, Trebinje. The Trebinje case, when, uh, when they expelled about 6,000 uh, Bosniaks out of that town, some of them uh, made it to uh, Montenegro. And we had a very good cooperation with Montenegrin authorities. They did not support uh, the militia. They, in fact, blocked the militia. And we managed to get about uh, 700 uh, of Bosniaks uh, by air, by flights to Montenegro. But some of them were reaching Belgrade, and we were providing them uh, shelter, food, and transportation to Turkey. So uh, one day I was told that there was an uh, elderly man and woman who wanted to talk to me personally. I said, okay, send them in. They did not want translators. So we communicated in pidgin, German, uh, Serbian. And uh, the man was a professor in his uh, early 70s. And the lady was his sister. And it took them about uh, eight to nine days to reach Belgrade. If you remember, uh, there was no uh, transportation. So uh, they made it uh, to uh, Belgrade. I said, they okay. walked. Did they? Is that- uh, uh, they walked. They found some local local support going through uh, uh, Sanjak area. So they made it in the end. They said, uh, "I said we are going to help you." They said, "No, that's not the point. Uh, thank you for your help. Okay, we'll take it." But the night before the attack, our neighbor, Serbian neighbor, came to us, and uh, he told us about the attack. And we had some savings, and it was uh, about uh, 60,000 German marks. So we gave our money to our neighbor, who will bring it to you, so you can send it to us. <laughs> My first reaction was, okay, yeah, in that wartime, when uh, pensions were about 25, 30 German marks, whether this man will make it or not, I don't know. Mm. I said, okay, I said, I make sure to know where you're going to be. And we, in fact, uh, put them on a bus, provided them with documentation and everything, and sent them to uh, to the Turkish uh, border, where there was a, a refugee camp in Vazios, Montage. A couple of days later, I was told that there was a Serbian man, a very nervous man, sweating at the door who wanted to uh, meet the chief of mission. I said, okay, send him in. So this man came. He was in a terrible shape, smelling, not washed, uh, and I don't know how he made it. So he started taking his clothes off. From every uh, part you can imagine, money was coming out. So he put 59,000 920 German marks on the uh, table. We counted it. And he said he had to take 80 German marks. He didn't have his own money for the trip. And he started crying. And I said, okay, thank you. I'll make sure that they get the full amount, 60,000. We had uh, funds. And I uh, wanted to give him uh, 500 German marks. He said, no, I cannot take it. Because the minute I walk out of your embassy, 
I could get arrested. I went in the, your embassy and I did not have a passport to ask for a visa. So I'm going to be questioned. And if they find money on me, mm. you know what's going to happen. Of course, yeah. So, uh, so we gave him some dinars, something like 100 German marks worth of dinars. And he went out. I asked my people to keep an eye. Uh, a few hundred meters later, two men got into his arms, put him in a car. And I did not hear uh, from him until 2013. Oh, wow. In 2013, I had his details. Uh, so we sent the money to that man and his uh, sister. They bought a small apartment in Bursa, and they lived there until 2005 and 2008. I followed their uh, story. So in 2013, I was in uh, Dubrovnik for a NATO uh, event, and I went to Trebinje, and I found the address. Uh, he was working in the uh, garden, and of I had a suit and the tie, so uh, out of ordinary uh, person. He looked at me. I looked at him. I think we uh, stared at each other for some time. Wow. I was trying to figure out whether he was he. Yeah. And he said, "You were in Belgrade." I said, "Yes, I was in Belgrade." And then uh, we had we had some coffee and a long discussion. Uh, he went back to his uh, departure from the embassy. He was beaten up for three, four days, kept in a cell for another week. And in the end, they thought he was not worthy of anything. So he was thrown out. And he made his way back and lived as a, a defeated but proud person. So there are so many stories like that. Uh, similar things happened uh, the other way around as well. Uh, so the understanding is that ordinary people, uh, some of them, of course, uh, listen to the official rhetoric because they wanted to believe in something. Mm. And in Belgrade, many people had no money to buy newspapers, so they were renting it by the hour. <laughs> and they wanted to believe the official rhetoric. Oh, we are defending ourselves. While defending ourselves, we entered this town that town. In Banyaluka, we uh, saved ourselves freedom. Yes, we destroyed 15 uh, mosques in Banyaluka, uh, but that's normal. This is defense against aggressors. So ordinary people really wanted to believe the government. And that's, that brings us to uh, how rhetoric, how narrative of the governments or war perpetrators affect the people. But of course, lies can only last for some time. And the same happened in Serbia. And uh, Milosevic, the proud Serbian nationalists, were easily handed over uh, to international authorities. Yes, few people cried after him, few people made noise, but the majority had the moral uh, understanding that what happened was bad. And Serbia is still a defeated country of people who are shy to discuss uh, history. Many of them were not part of it, the younger generation, but they still feel some sort of remorse about what happened. And I think it's true for many wars. 
you can never come out uh, morally 100% uh, pure. Absolutely. Especially in a war like that where, where – and maybe that's another question that I'd like to hear your opinion on. First part of the question, I guess, is how does that happen? How do neighbors – so this is a really positive example, and, and I think we need to emphasize those, and thank you for that. They gave me goosebumps, by the way. That was a really powerful example. But what we see more often is that – or hear more often about is the neighbor turning on neighbor which is how these wars are sustained, right? So ha- firstly, how does that actually happen? And then the next part of it is how do the narratives that you mentioned and the rhetoric that goes around the war help keep that uh, war alive, I guess? Uh, of course, personalities play a, an important role. But pack uh, understanding. If you're part of a big group, then uh, you can easily uh, put aside your uh, strong moral values for sake of belonging to one party or the other. And uh, that was the feeling. Everybody uh, were doing it, so I joined them. Even in uh, football games, the same thing happens. Sometimes you are part of a uh, supporter of a team and you go into a brawl and you do something which you would not do when you're alone when you're in your true senses. So uh, this uh, pack identity, I think, has a certain effect. Interests, if it is a survival issue, and if there is no punishment that is uh, visible, that plays a certain role. The person may feel guilty inside, but outside he is innocent. So people lose that balance. If, uh, for example, during the war, your neighbor left and the car is there, so uh, what prevents you from taking it? And many people eat that. My uh, The example I gave was an extreme case, but it's worth hearing that there is good in uh, every nation, every tribe, every clan, every neighborhood. But the opposite uh, was very valid as well. Think of Srebrenica. Yeah. I was uh, awake all night and I was getting uh, minute by minute uh, reports of what was happening. Do you believe uh, every person who killed an, an innocent Muslim was really uh, a normally bad guy? No, but some of them joined the crowd and said, okay, this is a matter of survival, so we killed them. Hmm. I, I'm sure many of them. Uh, still uh, feel guilty inside uh, if they're still alive. Uh, But yet some of them said, okay, it was us against them. And there are no rules. Machiavelli. We win at any cost. And then we will uh, feel guilty about it later. So that's the uh, feeling. And the narrative, of course, uh, encourages people to do things out of ordinary. You respect your neighbor uh, when everything is normal. Uh, but if there is a encouragement uh, from the people you want to believe, and there is encouragement from the uh, neighbor's friends, family around you, then you may uh, go out of line. And maybe uh, 80, 90% of the Serbs did the same. But uh, many really wanted to believe 
a small example in uh, early March in Belgrade, mm. just after the uh, really uh, severe cold, I saw an old, very fragile lady selling some uh, flowers, tiny flowers. Mm. And she was shivering. I said, okay, how much it is? For the whole bunch, she asked for something like $2 in today's exchange. And I gave her uh, uh, maybe $10 or more. And I took everything and I said, uh, go back home today. And she said, where are you from? I said, I am Turkish. She had tears in her eyes and she said, why are you doing this to us? I said, what? The war. Why are you fighting us? Why are you doing, bringing all this calamity on us? And she was sincere. Mm. She was sincere. She was made to believe and she wanted to believe that Turks, Germans, Americans, and Bosniaks were bad and everybody else on their side was good. So this is how narratives bring ordinary people to do things out of ordinary. Mm. It's incredible, and it's incredibly powerful. I mean, I, another guest that I had on previously, a, a philosopher, Kian O'Driscoll, he's done research into, uh, and it was funny you talked about the Iraq war, because he's researched power of narrative as one of the domains in how the Bush and Blair administrations motivated their population to go to war. And it was this, and it's a very famous idea. It's nothing new, but, you know, particularly kind of George Bush with the whole axis of evil, you know, you're either with us or you're against us. It infuses, yes. it infuses within the, the, the sentence, the words, the language, moral righteousness, a moral judgment that, you know, we are fighting evil. Therefore we are good. And it's a hugely powerful motivating tool to drive and encourage and unite people, like you said, because of a sense of belonging, because of a sense of group identity. And when an identity is under threat, it becomes stronger, it becomes more galvanized. Uh, and therefore, this kind of existential threat, like you beautifully summed up about, you know, either you live or you die, and it's my group that's going to protect me, which I find a hugely, hugely powerful topic that we very rarely discuss on you know, uh, uh, and analyze on the broader conflict dynamics. We seem to focus on particular actions, you know, of bombs fell here, bombs fell there, and we kind of try to dissect it on a day-to-day -day basis, but we very rarely really peel back the multiple layers of a conflict that actually keep it alive, and this is one of them, right? True, true. Uh, that, okay, for the US and UK case, it was easy for people to believe because they were not feeling the war at their surroundings. It was a distant war. So many people wanted to believe uh, their leaders or their evil. But what happened, uh, the, same, the same applied for Vietnam. When, when the veterans and when uh, body bags started coming back, people uh, started questioning whether the rhetoric was correct or not. And in the end, U.S., after losing 55,000 people, had to flee the country uh, uh, through the roof of the embassy. And Vietnam is a normal country today. So uh, why, 
more than a million people died, gassed, uh, shot in the head. Uh, so public opinions uh, react late, unless, of course, they have to sacrifice themselves. Uh, the same applies for Afghanistan. The same applies for Iraq and many other wars. That's uh, far away from your home country. For the American or British public opinion, all they heard was Blair or Bush. Uh, they never heard uh, what the ordinary Iraqis were going through. And I had met so many people in Iraq, Shiite, Sunni, uh, or Turkoman, or Kurds. How they uh, suffered tells me another story. Uh, perhaps I was too much involved in uh, the plight of ordinary people in those countries behind the uh, uh, fronts, what was happening to uh, the ordinary people. So uh, I was very skeptical of the war on Iraq. Uh, I, I would repeat, Saddam was not a good guy. He was ruthless, a dictator. But is Iraq better today? Is Libya better today? We start solutions. We never finish them as West in most cases. Afghanistan, we started something. And in fact, in Afghanistan, the fight was against Osama bin Laden and maybe 800 followers of him. Then it turned into Taliban, which was maybe uh, six, seven million. Then it turned into a fight against the Pashtun, who are 45 millions and uh, living in uh, three different countries. So uh, to be aware of the culture, ethnicity, history of uh, where we are going is extremely important. And that was uh, one of the points you put in front of me. How do we, how do we succeed in solving uh, a conflict? And your question was about war. Uh, is war a relevant tool? It is. But at the same time, wars have solved so few problems. Or they created new ones. No, I, I, no absolutely. And I think we'll, we, I definitely will, will come on, on that for the, for the understanding of the, of the local context. I think it's hugely important. Just, while we, just before we move away too far from Iraq and your experiences there, because I, I want to come back to a point that you brought up really early on, and that was the – because I think it's relevant here because it speaks to another another area uh, of interest. And that's, you mentioned about your Ukrainian friend who was earning $300 a month in Ukraine, but was earning $300 a day in Iraq during the inspections. I went to Iraq as a, as a civilian, as a contractor, uh, heading up a British development consultancy. We had really interesting projects, you know, decentralization of governance, building civil society through social media, even involved in some various uh, uh, security uh, apparatus projects, but I was amazed, you know, and we often talk about the military industrial complex, but I was amazed by the post conflict industrial complex where that very point you made, you know, $300 a day, uh, today that is $1,500 a day for contractors who are flying in from all around the world. And literally, I mean, I was, <laughs> I was setting up a very small company, but we were paying a million pound a month. Uh, for various projects, uh, you know, maybe, maybe 50 to 100,000 of that, uh, might go towards the actual delivery of the, of the project, but the rest would be 
for our own security because we had to have our armored vehicles. We had to have, uh, you know, stay in highly secure hotels. And of course, all of these hotels were charging an ex- exuberant fees. We would then fly in various consultants from, you know, far flung places around the world who were experts in various dimensions. But 90% of those that I spoke with were largely cynical. They knew that they would be in Iraq for the next year. Then they'll go to Afghanistan. Then they'll go to Syria. Then they'll maybe fly across, uh, you know, to another part of the world and maybe go to Venezuela or, you know, end up somewhere else because that is their life and that is their job. But most of them were really cynical about the likely impact they would have on quote unquote fixing Iraq. And that opened my eyes in many ways because I realized this is a monstrous industry. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars industry, uh, that's being poured uh, into places like Iraq and Afghanistan. But most of the people doing the work don't necessarily believe that it's going to fix anything. How, how does that viewed through your eyes? Uh, I, I totally agree with you. And, uh, okay, in Iraq, I did not see the part of post-crisis uh, rehab. But in Somalia, I did. I was uh, responsible uh, for uh, relations with the African Union during the uh, uh, operation uh, counter piracy, and it started with that, but uh, with Darfur. So uh, I became part of uh, of so-called an ambassador of NATO at the African Union, and we had uh, contacts uh, with the Somali leadership of that time. This is exactly uh, what they told to me, what you said. There are organizations, UN, for example, helping uh, the Somalis from Kenya. They come to Kenya. Nobody wants to come to Mogadishu. Okay, it was not very easy, but they would stay in Kenya, earn uh, uh, $15,000 a month or more, and they gave me similar uh, figures. Nations talk about $100 million aid, and maybe uh, if we are lucky, $20 million comes here, and $80 million goes back to contractors, or there are conditions that the material needed should come from the aid-providing country. And the prices are uh, fixed by the provider, not by the buyer. That's, that's very unfortunate. I think it it's, uh, has become an industry for nations. Uh, many nations ask the question, what is in it for me? Even countries like Norway, which is one of the biggest aid uh, donors, they ask the question, okay, we go into this country. I've seen it in Ethiopia, for example. We go in, but uh, what do we get out of it? Uh, we go in, we help them then they, they're ready to make business and they make business with the Chinese or the Americans that are more uh, powerful nations, let's say. It's a dilemma. I don't think there is an easy solution to it. Even if you provide the aid to some local authorities, it's a matter of ethics for those local authorities to make sure that people benefit. Uh, and in Africa, I am not exactly sure about the aid programs of the UN, but 
it must be over $800 billion in the history of the organization, maybe more. Uh, this is a very old uh, figure I remember. How much of it made to ordinary people? That's the question mark. And in fact, funny enough, that's why the Chinese have been so uh, effective in Africa. They give some money to the leaders, certainly, but they also build railroads, ports, industrial sites. They use their own workers. They use their own material. But in the end, something remains in the hands of those countries. Whereas the West, when they go in, they hardly uh, make, us, make such an impact. In Ethiopia, I think the first paved road between two cities was built by the Japanese. And they may regret it because they didn't get much out of uh, that country. That's the Chinese and the Turks. They are very active in that country. The Dutch, they, uh, they produce their tulips in Ethiopia. So uh, most of the donors expect to get something out of it. They don't really mind whether the uh, aid goes to the right people or not. Uh, I have a personal experience uh, in that case in Azerbaijan in, uh, when I was consul general there. Uh, it's Turkish uh, uh, foundations were offering uh, aid uh, to local people. And I said, my first reaction was that, okay, it shouldn't be money because uh, uh, we need to give something to people which they cannot sell easily. So food stuff. And we are not going to give it through the local authorities because the first month I got there, I saw Turkish uh, food stuff sold in the market uh, with the stamp that it was aid coming from a certain foundation. So we started distributing uh, it directly to people. Uh, about 1,200 families were in our list and we decided to deliver them uh, uh, directly. The local authorities were not very happy uh, for an obvious reason. And first, uh, the local people suspected us. They said, are you serious? Are you giving us five kilos of meat and 20 kilos of uh, cereals or whatever? Said, yes. They said, what is in it for you? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, would, I would funnily put my salary in the picture. Uh, occasionally, because that was the understanding for people. When they would say, what is in it? The local, uh, let's say, bureaucrat was earning on average 50,000. No, 50, 50 uh, American dollars at mm. that time. Mm, mm. Today, it's a different story. Yeah. I would say for $50, your bureaucrats can risk their jobs. But for my salary, I'm not going to risk my uh, job for two kilos of meat or anything. Yeah. They would say, oh, okay, that's understandable. You get so much? Say, yeah. Yes, I get yeah. so much. Yeah. I, I hope you will uh, get the same uh, in the future. And that's what happened in that country. But at that time, when the incentives were low for bureaucrats uh, or local authorities, and when the incentives are low for foreign aid donors, the aid doesn't reach uh, the people who really need it. Yeah. And I think, again, the Balkans are a prime example of that from the war onwards. It's very much about individual survival. And uh, also for those in power, they don't know how 
arguably how long they will be in power for. Uh, so therefore, they take what they can while they can to secure their safety, security for the future. And if you get a moment of power, if you get a position of power, your principal goal is to get as much as you can while you are in power because uh, it's a very short-lived point. But that also reminds me, there's one uh, I would be chastised by uh, certainly many of the Bosnians who listen to my podcast if I didn't ask about the Dayton Peace Accords. You mentioned you were part of the um, Dayton Peace Accords uh, negotiations. What what kind of what role did you play? Because I think you have again another really interesting story. And 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 forgive me, I'm conscious of the time. Are we still okay for time? Do we? I am definitely okay. It's I'm on holiday. Let's see. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So on. Uh, uh, so what what was your kind of role in Dayton? Uh, there is always a major dilemma in uh, bringing uh, peace or stopping the fighting versus full solution to the problem. And coming to Bosnia, for example, let's talk about Cyprus. In 1974, UN moved in and no one got killed after that. But the two parties became too lazy to find a real solution. Look at UNRWA, the uh, Palestinian case. Can Outside brought partial solutions, stopping the fighting is an incentive for a final solution or not. Dayton agreement was a temporary solution. The idea was to stop killings, to uh, stop the plight of ordinary people's sufferings. But it was never designed to become a, a permanent solution. And that's where everybody failed. Once everybody was relaxed, okay, nobody's dying. So do we really need just solution? And the West did not impose anything further than Dayton Agreement on the parties. The three uh, republics, the rotating uh, presidential solutions, uh, decision-making, I think I think it's a it's a total uh, failure on part of the West to bring solutions to the uh, to the crisis that is still on the ground. So many uh, Bosnians have left their country with no intention to go back. Who remained? Mostly are those who could not go out. They did not have the skills. They did not have the language. So the best and brightest, in most cases, left the country. That's a, that's a big dilemma, uh, whether outsiders, by stopping a fighting, have the will or power to bring a final solution. Of course, final solution, I'm always trying to talk about a win-win situation when nobody feels totally defeated. The same goes for Bosnia, uh, whether Serbs or Croats or Bosnians feel that uh, they, are, they, are, they have being treated justly. <clears throat> and I traveled, to, I traveled to Bosnia because uh, Bosnian NATO operation and Kosovo operations were under our headquarters. So I had to travel once a month to Sarajevo and uh, to talk to people and to meet, of course, the uh, NATO force uh, leadership there. There was no strong incentive on part of the local authorities 
for a serious solution. As you said, everybody was interested in defending the uh, interests of their uh, respective uh, uh, people and not interested in coming together and bringing, for example, Bosnia into the European Union. And it's sad, it's really sad, if three leaderships in that country have an IQ of, I would say, 101, they would, they would go for uh, a united uh, picture and bring the European Union in. Is it a magical wand to cure all the problems? No, no. But it will definitely be better than uh, what it is today. The same, the same uh, goes for Cyprus. If the local uh, leaders could unite, okay, one party is uh, part of European uh, Union, but they have no uh, access to the rest of the country. So it will remain divided until both parties are part of the same family. And in Bosnia, it's Bosnia-Herzegovina, but it's not one single family. Okay, peaceful coexistence. I think that's what they should concentrate on. We are here. We don't have to mingle. We can be uh, in our separate parts, but we should have one goal, to have a better life. And unfortunately, that's not happening in most of the uh, cases. Uh, when a solution like Dayton Agreement was imposed from outside without incentives to push hard, really, the people or to persuade. I don't, I don't think it should be pushing hard. It should be persuading the people to go for the common good of the whole society. And, uh, you are never further away than 50 kilometers from, from Serbs or Croats in Bosnia. The same applies for everybody. It is such a uh, mosaic of different beliefs in one small area. Yeah, it's a, a, absolutely. And while we were there, we also noticed, and we, we happened to have been there during the 2014 uh, riots where the presidential palace was burnt and you know, there was a, the people felt like, well, at least we were naive enough to think, hold on, something's happening. There's an uprising by people. And we were literally standing and watching the presidential palace being burnt, you know, we were 20 meters, 30 meters away from, you know, these riots amongst a crowd of people who were basically just onlookers. And, and there's, of course, the rioting crowd doing the rioting, so to speak. But then you turned around and 100 meters down the road, the cafes were still open. People were still having their coffee. Life went on as normal. And when we then spoke to some of those people who just sat there and watched, it became obvious that people have almost lost hope in change. The general rhetoric was, ah, it's just another riot. Within two days, it will be politicized. Within two days, the different parties will start blaming each other and the actual momentum of the people will die out because it will be politicized and turned into ethnic, uh, you know, it's, the Serbs will say, oh, it's the Bosniaks. The Bosniaks say it was the, the Serbs and you know, the Croats will say it was both or the other, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore people have kind of, uh, you know, they're just almost indifferent about what happens because there's just the, 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 and they refer, they use the, they use the term quite often in Bosnia and you, you're sure you've heard it, you know, the octopus. The octopus is so big and wide with the tentacles are everywhere. Yeah. That, you know, it is just, it is just too difficult. You, you cut one tentacle off. There are, you know, plenty others. And, 
I think that's that speaks to that very point. You know, it's the it's the narratives are still there. They're powerful. The interests are still there. They're powerful. The system is so complex by design because it was trying to solve a problem, but it is in no individual party's interest to say resolve resolve Dayton. And everybody in Bosnia knows that Bosnia can't go forward until Dayton is resolved. Uh, you know, until we get rid of Dayton, whatever that means, because you know it is it is a stifling system. But Dayton can't be resolved because none of the parties want to resolve it because it's in their interest to keep their power base, you know, by keeping the quote unquote keeping the war alive or the idea, the narrative of the war alive, which I think is you know the point you're making about most of these types of conflicts. What, what do we do? What does the international community do? Because I think the international community, what, what what can we do? Otherwise, this is going to go on forever, really. I think uh, the interest in the international community to solve uh, such problems is rather low. The UN, for example, it's an interesting structure. It can only intervene if everybody agrees and everybody would agree on the minimum, minimum uh, common standard. And in most cases, the standard is not there. The interests are uh, low. If you're a UN mission uh, soldier coming from Fiji or uh, from Nigeria, your interests are not fully uh, uh, on behalf of the local people, but different interests. And you have a limited time and you're looking forward. The same goes for capitals. The same goes for UN headquarters. The interests to find real honest solutions is very low, unfortunately. I, I saw that. Uh, and the organization's structures, the manning is not always uh, the best. Uh, in the African Union, for example, I can say more than 50% of the staff were there because they knew the right people back at home. So there are many, many problems related to it. The magic is uh, a generation who has not gone through the uh, hardships of crisis. And Bosnia, uh, Bosnian Serbs and Croats at least share the same language. And I can say the culture. So the younger generation, once the leaders of the past have passed their age of leading, maybe the younger generations will have a hope. But this is not true for many other societies. If I go back to Cyprus, for example, since 1974, the uh, Greeks are not learning Turkish. Turks are not learning Greek. So the common language will be probably English between the two communities of the same island. Uh, this goes for the Caucasus. When I served in Georgia, the initial reaction of the Georgians was to stop teaching Russian at their schools. But after, after a couple of years, they realized that they did not have a lingua franca with their neighbors, Turks, Azeris, Armenians, Russians. So they reintroduced Russian language to a number of schools to keep a number of people who can understand their neighbors. But in many cases, 
the last train is gone and the two uh, communities that have to live together uh, cannot find a common ground. So uh, I still have a hope for uh, Bosnia that the younger people will question why are we fighting? Of course, the stories, the legends will continue. They are bad, we are good. But uh, after some time, maybe uh, interests of younger generations will prevail and they can come to a point. This is very wishful thinking. I'm playing Poliana, but there is a, there is a, a slight hope and chance that that society uh, may find a common uh, way uh, to uh, live on the same territory. Uh, yes, distinct, uh, but if they can find a common good, there is uh, still hope. But don't I don't trust on uh, international organizations bringing uh, a solution. Uh, we had we had uh, cases in uh, NATO, for example, when Georgia and Ukraine were attacked. The initial reaction was. Do we do something about it? These are uh, partnership for peace countries, and they are under an obvious attack. In fact, this was the initial reaction of the military in NATO. In both cases, we prepared our uh, scenarios. It's called prudent thinking because we were not allowed to make plans. So it was never called a plan. It was called prudent thinking. But in uh, Georgia case, when we were going through that prudent thinking, how do we provide help without kinetic? Uh, it's, let's say, non-kinetic, but show that you're there. Uh, the first reaction was for Barroso, Sarkozy, and Merkel to travel to Moscow and stop NATO. No, we have interests. The Germans, oh, we need gas. We, we need gas from Russia. We cannot uh, even think about opposing, forget about fighting. And that encouraged Putin to go into Ukraine. What happened? Some paltry uh, sanctions, but gas pipe, uh, pipelines are being built and uh, business as usual goes on. I think Germans sell more Mercedes in Russia than in many other countries. So interests. And as I said, uh, international organizations, including NATO, is the uh, point of minimum common uh, values and standards. So don't expect much from international organizations. I worked in two of them. I was involved with the uh, UN and uh, African Union. And I'm slightly pessimist, or more than slightly pessimist, about uh, really doing something. The only case an international organization would be effective is real defense. During the uh, Warsaw Pact NATO times, any attack would have been responded with force. But when it was the Brits fighting the Argentinians over Falklands, you know what NATO did first? They put a geographical line for areas to be, con uh, to be considered as defense of member nations. And they made sure that Falklands or uh, Southern Rim was out of NATO's <laughs> defense uh, geography. 
Wow. The same, the, the same applied for uh, uh, NATO operation in Iraq and NATO operation in Afghanistan. Are we really there to defend NATO values, NATO countries? Mm. Okay, we'll do something out of, of course, uh, being part of the same uh, organization. Yes, certain things were considered, but never fully enthusiastic about fighting uh, the problem and winning. So Turks, for example, in Afghanistan, they did not want to be involved in kinetic fighting. They were uh, busy for some projects. They provided uh, support for future intended post-crisis rehab projects, but they they never got involved uh, in the fighting. So a few nations uh, carried the burden of fighting and they lost. This is, uh, I mean, yeah, this is, uh, I can't agree more. I think this is uh, a real perspective on the geopolitical machinations that exist, which I find fascinating that we, you know, most people say, oh, of course, uh, you know, what do you think that we're actually going to war to help? <laughs> and but, but most people then start still, quote unquote, swallowing the official story, and we still end up going ultimately to no solution, which I find absolutely fascinating. What what keeps you going then? Because I, I agree, I think I, I'm I'm becoming, and I'm 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 young, and I'm young in this game, and um, I'm perhaps still naive, and I still have some. I'm perhaps still a little bit idealistic, but I think I'm a realist enough to agree with everything you're saying. But what keeps you going? It's, uh, I, I think I uh, gave up uh, on uh, solving uh, the problems to the point that there would be no conflict, no problem. I gave up on that a long time. So uh, instead of a sense of community, I concentrate on what I can do. Personally, in the case of, uh, for example, crisis areas, I try to put my perspective, present it to interested parties, and then hope that something will happen. If I'm asked, that's what I do. In fact, uh, with our uh, company strategy worldwide, we can make a small impact on uh, certain cases. If a company applies us uh, for help, uh, they are going to invest in a specific nation where there are certain risks. The first issue is to identify the risks and to mitigate if agreed upon. Uh, The idea is always to bring in win-win situation. The local people be happy. The local authority, the company should be happy. And this is true for uh, everything else. Uh, I do a geopolitical analysis for a group of uh, companies. Uh, The same. What are the risks? I just finished yesterday a 16-page narrative on uh, Eastern Mediterranean. What are the problems? I'm talking about Turkey, Syria, Israel, Egypt, uh, Libya, Cyprus, and Greece. There are problems there? (laughs) <laughs> no, who said that? <laughs> who said wow, that? What, 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 a, what an easy area to analyze. Wow, okay. <laughs> very, very easy area. So uh, I wrote down 16 pages of problems and possible solutions. 
on paper, it looks great. I can solve any problem on paper. <laughs> when, it, when it comes to uh, realities, it is difficult. But at least our task is to put solutions, if we can, down on paper. So there will be a uh, record of it uh, in the future. For example, Turkish-Israeli relations. It was great. It was great. Turkey was one of the first uh, Muslim country to recognize Israel. And we had a history of uh, 15th century, 16th century Jews being expelled from Iberian Peninsula coming to the Ottoman uh, soil. They were called Milleti Sadaka, that means loyal people. Uh, Jews were called loyal people. And in Israel, about 100,000 uh, Jews have uh, dual passports. Huh. So uh, as two non-Arab nations of the area, do we have anything to fight over? No. Uh, uh, should we uh, have moral values about the oppressed and oppressors? Yes. Can we help the oppressed through hard rhetoric or uh, soft power? My belief is the second one, soft power, try to persuade, help your friends to solve their problems. So uh, there are very uh, optimistic solutions. It is just very difficult to put all the elements into the same uh, basket. Like Netanyahu today wants fight. Today, Turkish president is happy with certain crises. So that keeps the public attention away from other problems, economy, for example, or Turkey, or uh, lack of human rights, rule of law. There are so many objections in Turkey. But if there is an outside threat, that's great. That's lovely. Everybody unites against the outside threat. And unfortunately, many leaders have used it so far, and they will continue to uh, use it. So uh, that's my point. At least I have the power uh, to put what is right for me on paper. 99% goes unnoticed uh, or say, okay, it's all right. But uh, at NATO, I always had the feeling that I was giving the right advice. The commanders would agree with me face to face. I don't know what was happening behind the closed doors because they had other uh, incentives or orders from their capitals. But uh, the way I was paid, I said, okay, why would they bother paying me if, the, if what I told them was not uh, what they expected or what they enjoyed hearing? My first commander said uh, something very important. It was his first phrase. He said, you have to be brutally honest with me. Even if you don't agree with me, you have to tell me that you don't agree with me. I don't need someone agreeing me all the time. That means I'm right. And uh, who needs advice if you're always right? <laughs> so, uh, so that was the motto. And I think I have to put uh, forward what I believe is right. Whether it makes an uh, impact or not, that's a big question mark. Oh, I have no no doubt, and 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 this allows me also to pivot to perhaps, uh, and again, conscious of the time, maybe the last area I'd like to focus on, and that is, as a political advisor or as a chief political advisor to uh, senior NATO commanders, if I understand it correctly, one of your jobs was to 
analyze the social, political, economic situation or the, as we would potentially call that, the human terrain. And I often refer to it as the ecosystem that exists within an area of conflict. And this is certainly an area that's very close to my heart. I'm involved in a couple of courses where we're trying to teach or to trying to peel back some of these layers to try and analyze the, the architecture that exists within a conflict. And you've made a couple of points throughout our conversation about the importance of understanding what happens, the historical context that keep, you know, you, just when you're talking about the relationship between Israel and Turkey, you brought up a couple of interesting points that are so fundamental to understanding how the relationships today exist within between those two nations. To what extent do you think we invest sufficient time and resources in understanding the quote-unquote ecosystem of a conflict before we, say, send troops in or, uh, you know, uh, send aid in or send uh, or, 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 you know, put sanctions or whatever, whatever it might be? Uh, I think, uh, I think, it's extremely important. I, it's fifty uh, percent of success, at least fifty percent of success in any conflict or in any tension situation to understand uh, your rivals. I think that's one of the most important points of the American case. They usually have difficulty in understanding the opponents. And this is true for many other nations. You have to understand the culture aspect, historical background. What makes two nations kick in as friends or foes? Uh, social structures, ethnic and religious. You cannot change ethnic, religious, cultural and historical backgrounds. They stay more or less the same. If you understand them, then you may have a chance to uh, build a bridge, fill the gaps between the two societies. Political, on the other hand, depends on many more aspects. Survival of the politician, survival of the party, keeping the public opinion under uh, context, information management, strategic communication, they all kick in. So uh, uh, in, in most cases, political aspect, political dimension is the most difficult one. During my uh, lectures uh, at Stadfast Pinnacle and Pyramid, this is NATO high-level course for preparing commanders into NATO structure. My discussion was always based on the military. You get an order, you get the means, and you have only one thing to do. Uh, win the war or not get defeated. But for the politician, politician is a belly dancer. <laughs> they have to keep the public interest. They have to think about the economy, uh, how my party is doing, what are the polls telling me? And they may change their uh, orders, not based on what's happening on the ground, kinetically, but on what's happening in the background. So... Awareness, as I said, is 50%. And awareness of the public opinion is more difficult to achieve. Because one of the first things uh, that, for example, in Serbia, in uh, Belgrade, was to control the awareness. So people should not know uh, what's happening. 
People should only hear what the leaders are telling them. In today's social media environment, things are changing uh, slightly, but it is so manipulative. It's so difficult to stop lies or stop exaggerations. I still believe that, at least on the professional side, the leaders should listen to people who know the adversary. And people who know their own people as well, of course. It's not a one-way street. Unless scorch or total annihilation is possible, resistance will always uh, come. I uh, love a phrase the Afghans uh, used in fighting against the West. They said, you have the weapons, we have the time. Mm. And they had the time. Because every soldier who went there was immediately thinking about when they are going to leave and their loved ones at home, their normal lives. So awareness uh, is a key. And there are so many cases why wars will get out of hand uh, because you don't know your adversary or counterpart. Have you seen one? Yes, sorry, go on. Yes, yes, yes. For example, gender issues. Now uh, we we had discussed, touched it briefly, Gender is an extremely important issue to understand the dynamics of different genders in different societies. Uh, Afghanistan was an important case. Uh, For example, Americans wanted to treat Afghans as fellow Americans, male-female interaction, until uh, a Swedish gender advisor joined the cadre of secure Supreme Allied Commander Europe to advise them, hey, don't do it. They may understand it differently. So uh, that's, part of, that's part of a solution now, to understand how the uh, adversary, the local people, will see what you are doing, will react to what you are doing. Uh, if you pat a child on the head in Thailand, that's an offense. If you do it in Turkey, that's a compliment. Like my child. Uh, So it's a a matter of totally understanding where you are and what you are doing. In Saudi Arabia, I was uh, at Jeddah Airport VIP. And I saw this local person, important person at the VIP, eating food and also uh, treating his nose in a way you know. Mm -hmm. And I gave him uh, a look which was not the correct thing to do, a bit of frowning. He said, what is wrong? I'm using my left hand. Yeah. I'm using my right hand for the food. So what is wrong? Hmm. Okay, I, I, uh, that was wrong of me to judge him uh, for what he did from my perspective. But that was normal for his perspective. So unless you understand them correctly... Uh, you're going to frown at what they're doing. Of course, it was disgusting. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's a, it's a really great example because it can, uh, it's a small example of an everyday interaction. Yes. But it, it has the ability to ultimately destroy potentially a relationship because it is something that we would consider just really inappropriate and therefore we would cast uh, – we, we, we have the tendency to – brush that person with a certain color the moment we see it right and 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 you 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 make a very good point and there are so many elements like that and and you bring up gender as an example 
which many soldiers on the ground would not have been told, certainly in the, in the initial days, you know, uh, what the rules and regulations might be or, or how it might, how something might be taken out of context and it could drive and contribute to people turning against, uh, you know, your own soldiers, for example. You know, it's a, it's a, it's Definitely. absolutely. And there are, there are many cases in Afghanistan or, uh, or in Iraq in different societies that misunderstanding or not understanding the local people. And even if we don't appreciate, we have to accept it as it is, which is tough. But for Saudis, left hand is doing the dirty work. So they never shake your uh, left hand if, uh, unless you don't have a right hand. That's, the, that's their understanding. And that's something normal. For us, it can be offensive. But then you have to either uh, keep your ways to yourself and make sure that uh, he doesn't touch anything that belongs to his left hand. And they are careful about it. They're careful about it. But then uh, that's, the, uh, that's the way things are. We cannot make everybody appreciate our values. That's one of the major problems uh, with the West. Uh, democratization of societies, for example. Are they really ready for democracy? Will democracy solve their problems? Ultimately, yes. But what if they are not ready for it? Look at African countries. How many of them are democracies? Do you know how many uh, African nations change the leadership peacefully through elections? Less than 10%. Less than 10% of leaders are changed through fair elections by the will of the people. So if you are part of that society, will you believe in elections? Will you believe that democracy brought the right leaders? Why a 30-year-old sergeant uh, may lead a country for 30 years? Millions of people. Do they really understand and believe that they have the right chemistry for that? Let's, let's look at back to Bosnia, the three leaders that come from their societies. Are they really the best? Or are they in there to appease certain groups? That's a big question, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, uh, maybe maybe the last question. Many analysts are warning us now uh, of, uh, of ever greater and greater risk of major state-on-state conflict because there are so many tensions around the world with a number of authoritarian leaders in various powerful countries who are all fighting for their power base and for their influence, whether globally or regionally. What's your view? How worried are you about the future in a major state-on-state conflict? My belief is that we have passed beyond the point of state-on-state wars, particularly the major ones, greater powers. In the U.S., uh, in Washington, in different uh, environments I'm part of, I hear always about, oh, China is the biggest threat, or the Russians are touching our interests. So uh, we should keep on building sixth gen- fifth generation, sixth generation uh, air fighters and this and that. At the same time, 
for example, for the U.S., China, how much investment the Americans have in China? More than a trillion, two trillions. How many General Motors cars are produced in China and the U.S.? China has the higher number. What is Chinese imports Americans are taking in during the uh, during the pandemic? The uh, lines of transportation communication were disrupted, and Americans had a great shortage of parts. Twenty percent of all components of electronics or uh, let's say computer science, twenty percent is uh, manufactured in. China, get them out. Is it easy to replace them? No. So my feeling is that interdependence is much greater than the politicians would agree upon or the military are uh, happy about. Interdependence has come to such a point that it's so difficult for many nations uh, to consider another country as a kinetic enemy. Do you think the Germans would fight the Russians as part of NATO today? What are you talking about, they would say. Hey, Deutsche Bank has uh, $65 billion uh, in Russia in terms of Russian debt. Do you think uh, Germans will fight the Russians and forget about their money? No, no. I don't believe any uh, major nation uh, will fight a defensive or offensive war today. And the weapons, of course. It's no more uh, like NATO was, NATO and Warsaw Pact was. We had a circle. It was divided in the middle. You knew who were your friends and who were your enemies. It was easy. You knew the enemy targets. Is it possible today with cyber warfare, with uh, other means of disrupting life in your country? So... There is no win-win situation. There is no absolute victory in any war today. American society, I'm living in it, and it is so fragile. Something happens, and the reaction is so big. 2009 economic crisis, pandemics, about 30 million people lost their jobs because it's so easy to uh, send people away. And do you think that society will go into a war? Because the people's individual interests are far beyond control in uh, major countries. Uh, They can export wars to distant lands. UK fighting uh, the Argentinians in Falklands, but UK will never want to fight uh, in uh, Birmingham or Manchester or London. So my feeling is that uh, state to state, big state to state, war is over. Small nations, yes, they can fight, but look at the Armenian-Azeri case, uh, the fall uh, war in 2020 in that area. The war never crossed the border because they were clever enough uh, not to make it into an all-out war. They fought on the front, and when one party decided that they could not keep it up, they gave up. Okay, leadership may change. That's fine. That's fine. So, simply put, my belief is that I don't expect a China to US war. Military will push for it because there is always some interest 
in uh, being strong, purchasing weapons. The uh, Turkish military and Greek military will talk about occasionally uh, of interests, kinetic, but I have followed the timelines of Turkish-Greek conflicts. They would start late in fall, go through uh, the winter months, but when it's tourism time, <laughs> the two nations would stop all those arguments. Who would want to scare uh, tourists coming to Aegean coasts or Greek islands? Yeah. It's simple. Interests. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that. And I'm, 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 I'm slightly more optimistic now when you put it that way because what I've, what's become perhaps clear in my mind for the first time is you've basically described you know the what, what I was talking about before about the Bosnian war that the narratives are kept alive you know for the powerful to remain in power and to do their to ch- pursue their interests the people are moved one way or another but never to the point of open war but sufficiently so to build enough momentum and power and threat or fear to actually yes. motivate people into action and that's the first time I, that's that's a really good way that you described it because in my mind what I was seeing is Bosnia but on a macro global scale between the nations like US and China and Russia which is again is uh, you know the same problem of of uh, narratives power play dynamics and that's a that's a wonderful insight and I think uh, I'm a little bit more optimistic now uh, having spoken to you about that point because we're certainly in Australia getting quite a lot of there's quite a lot of um, dust being raised about you know, China, U.S. relations, where's Australia in, in there? And, and Australia's also uh, had some growing tensions, I guess, with China. But I think that's a really, really optimistic view. Or as, as realistic and maybe even pessimistic it is, it's an optimistic view for the future, which I, uh, which I appreciate. Well, uh, about 70, 70% of Chinese labor force is involved in uh, exports. Uh, items. Do you think China can afford? Okay, they they have a couple of points which I found interesting. I was uh, giving a conference in Macau and another one in Hong Kong. And uh, in the evening, there was a reception and a couple of politicians uh, were there. And you know the effects of Mao Tai, their alcoholic drink. And after some bottles, one of the politicians looked at me and said, okay, you're from NATO, right? Yes, I'm from NATO. And the U.S. is your big boss, right? You can say that. Can you tell me what the U.S. ships are doing in South China Sea? I stopped. and He said, how do we call that sea? It's South China Sea, right? China, right? American ships, right? What happens if we send Chinese ships to San Diego Bay? How would the Americans react? (laughs) (laughs) He he had a point, Mm. but then again, I can ask the same question. What are the Chinese ships doing in Eastern Mediterranean? Going through joint exercises with Russia (laughs) about 10,000 kilometers away or more. So there will be always some rattling the sabers. It helps. But when it comes to actually throwing that saber, I think uh, 
sensible nations, and I believe those major nations are sensible, will not throw that saber. That's my uh, that's my hope, I should say. Yeah, that's a very optimistic uh, note, I think, to also end on. Hassan, I'm I'm speechless. I think we've been going for uh, what nearly two hours, but I feel like we've barely scratched the surface. And I'm just going to say it now: you will receive an invite for a second appearance on the podcast uh, in the future because I think there is so much more to talk about with uh, someone like you who's lived a life of conflict in so many different dimensions. I truly thank you for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And like I said, the the time has just flown by, but I really do appreciate how much of it you've given me. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for this opportunity. I enjoyed it. And you helped me to collect my thoughts on these topics once more, because sometimes it gets too routine and I lose my uh, maybe focus on what I'm doing. Thanks for reminding me. One last phrase. One, one day I was uh, talking in private in a relaxed time with the commander. And the commander, American four-star admiral, he said, I'm tired. I'm tired of conflicts, wars, tension. I said, be careful about what you wish. If there was complete peace uh, on earth, You come from San Diego, you would have been a fisherman. If you were a fisherman, you wouldn't need a political advisor. And I don't know what I would be doing, maybe farming, animal husbandry. I said, so be careful about what you wish. A controlled tension, controlled crisis environment is good for people like us. And I believe almost all the military in the US or China or in Russia They think the same way. And this goes for the politicians. So that's my last word. Control tension. I like that a lot. That's uh, and, and again, you've just uh, opened up an entire list of questions in my head that we could, uh, where we could go from here. And we will definitely save that for the next time uh, we speak. Thank you so much again. With pleasure. Thank you, Mas. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. Just a quick reminder to complete the survey. It will take you only two minutes and you can find the link in the show notes. Thank you.